Welcome to the Writer's Block Party Podcast with your hosts Meredith Bond and Prue Warren, where they discuss every aspect of a writer's life, from the craft of writing and editing, through publishing and marketing, and finally into building a global publishing empire. Here is Mary and Prue. Hello, and welcome to the Writer's Block Party podcast. I am Meredith Bond, here with my lovely co-host. I'm Prue Warren. And today, Prue, we have been having the strangest weather in Vienna. Actually, it's been going on for the past three days. It is, you can probably, you can see, but our listeners can't. I've got the sun streaming in. Well, not 10 minutes ago, it was snowing. And about 15 minutes before that, it was sunny. And about 20 minutes before that, it was snowing. And it's been like this for the past three days, snowing and sunny and snowing and sunny and snowing and sunny. And of course, it's warm. It's April. And so none of the snow is sticking. But it's snowing like a huge storm. What do I do with this? How does it make me feel knowing that it's April? I see what you're doing. (laughs) what's our what's our topic of discussion today meredith oh my gosh it's setting setting (laughs) now i answer the question was it really been snowing and sunny and snowing and setting are you just being an author no it was actually doing it it's been just crazy (laughs) it's been snowing and sleeting and hailing and sunny all and some t- last night we had snow thunder. Snow thunder. Wow. Wow. So if this was in a book, what would you expect of that scene? Exactly. I think you'd How expect would that it. make you feel? How it does would- it add to the setting, add to the story? Does it change anything? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> What's the answer? What's the well, answer? Thunder snow make you feel insane or what? Absolutely. <laughs> so it would be menace, right? You'd expect menace from thunder snow. You would expect menace. And and it's confusion because it doesn't thunder when it's snowing. It was also sunny at times when it was snowing. I mean, it was practically a whiteout of snow and the sun was out. How confusing is that? Very confusing. So if I were a character in a novel and I was going through this crazy upheaval and turmoil in my life and it's sunny and snowing, doesn't it all go back together beautifully? It does. It does. But now it makes me wonder about the times when um, if I see a very sad scene and it's a funeral and someone's being buried and it's raining, yeah, I. You took the cheap way out, author. Absolutely, it's a cliche. It's cliche. What you need is a really sunny, brilliant day with the birds singing, and the person is thinking, "How can life be going on when Dave is dead, or you know, whoever it is?" So but I think then, part of the problem is how do you use the trope of setting, and then how do you subvert the trope? Well, I would 
I mean, so many people have subverted just exactly that. The graveyard scene in bright sunlight. Right. So many people have subverted it that way that it's um, that's almost a cliche, right? I no. think that they should have it snowing and sunny. <laughs> Thunder snow, no doubt. Which presages the return of the dead body to life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's insane. Do you have any rules that I can write down on the subject of setting? Is it all a feeling? What thoughts do you have on how to make a setting, how to make the description of a setting a better way to tie the reader into the story? How to make the description better to tie the reader into the story? Well, the biggest thing that all writers, especially new writers, really need to remember when they're writing setting is not to do that dreaded info dump. Okay. Guilty as charged. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like, like all the other things that we're trying to avoid in the info dump, my goal is to weave setting into the story. Exactly. Make it a part of the action. So when somebody walks into a room, instead of stopping and taking stock, you know, an inventory of the room, instead they walk in and drop down on the blue damask sofa and prop their feet up on the mahogany table, right? Yes, I do see that. And I think what's interesting, right before we started the podcast, I had it in my head that we were doing the wrong topic, so I wasn't prepared for setting and description. And I thought, I'll go grab some books and and share. And all the books I grabbed tend to be long-winded and do an info dump description of everything. So I'm particularly glad that I gave up and said, no, you have to do all the examples because I got nothing. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Okay. That makes me think. I have three examples for us. And one of them kind of is an info dump, but it works. Okay. All right. Well, that's um, and I am just pulling up. Actually, it made me think of one of my own books. I'm terribly sorry. I that's all right because profusely. I still bride sitting next to me, and I thought, I wonder if there's anything I can I can find really quickly. Yeah, like four of them met in the great council room of the castle. <laughs> that's not an info dump, but I exactly know now where they are they've given me the setting and they've they've just flipped it right along let me read to you the first paragraph or so of one of my books if you don't mind go girl richard heard the beautiful music and felt all of his muscles tense his ghosts were back as he stepped into his desolate house he thought that the fog outside had somehow penetrated his mind The shadows cast by the single candle flickering on the dusty table somehow accentuated the gloom. He stopped and listened, his coat and hat slipping from his fingers onto the floor. Surely he had to be imagining the music. That's that's good scene setting. So I know um, outside. I know what it's like inside. I've got fog outside. I've got a single inside. Yeah. Yeah. Lot going on. You know, I think in one of our very earliest podcasts, 
that was one of the examples that you read. And it's funny. Yes. And now we've come back to it and I see it in a different, I see it in a different way. Now we're talking about setting. We're now talking about setting. It was the PLV. It was the PLV podcast about how to uh, use description to get into the guy's mind. Like saying, I thought the fog had penetrated my brain instead of saying, I felt confused. Right. So your description, you know, that's, look, we've got a tie back. Description, not info dumpy. And also description should get you into the point of view of the character. Yeah. I've got another example that does something very interesting. This is um, Mary Alice Monroe, The Beach House, Chapter One. Tara had begun this long journey home many times in her mind over the years, but always there was some project, some appointment, some emotional obstacle of her own construction that stopped her. Road-weary and life-tired, Tara was traveling the path of least resistance as she headed south across the flat expanse of the old cotton country known as the Coastal Plains. It had been over 20 years since she'd driven this long stretch stretch of South Carolina highway toward the sea. Growing up, she'd always considered it someplace to drive through on her way to somewhere else, anywhere else. She passed vanishing woodlands and acres of farmland for sale, huge flat-roofed warehouses and sun-faded billboards heralding exits for boiled peanuts, tree-ripened peaches, stock car racing and fireworks. It was late May, Spring already giving way to the sizzling summer of the South, elderberry bushes rambled along the roadsides and beyond in the pine woods. Tara knew the coral beans were aflame and swamp roses decorated the banks of some wild hothouse garden. That thought, the thought of that the sea turtles were returning home to nest sprang to mind and she laughed out at the irony because she's going home. So let me ask you, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Go ahead. the language is really beautiful. I mean, it's very, very evocative. Mm-hmm. Where do we go? What's the line between setting a scene and doing an info dump? Right. Because, well, what's fascinating about this beginning and this description is that think of so many movies that you've watched, a movie will start with the big picture. It'll start with this overhead picture, like from an airplane or a helicopter. And then it'll zoom in onto a neighborhood. And then it'll zoom in onto a house. And then it'll zoom into the front yard where a man is throwing a ball with his playing catch with his son. Right. This book does exactly that same thing. It starts with this big picture of Kara driving across these, down the highway, along South Carolina. She crosses uh, water. And so you're starting with this big picture of the highway, and then we get more narrow. It narrows down to the town as she drives through the town, and then it narrows down to her mother's house, and it ends up with her noticing her mother's car in the driveway and the porch half falling down. It does exactly that same thing. Is it an info dump? 
it's kind of an info dump, but it's bringing the reader into the story very gently. I think that the I think that it's the same thing we were just talking about from your sample, which is that the description includes the speaker or the or the the person the, who's the point of view character. Point of view character. And so it's description, but it's also POV. Yes. That stops it from being a recitation of the plants I saw on my drive to my mother's house. Exactly. So so that's an opportunity to turn. Can you always, Meredith, I'm going to put you on the spot now and ask you this question. If you were, if you are fighting the urge to do an info dump or to do, as you know, Bob, which is my favorite phrase for tell you something that you already know, can you take that desire to get the description out and and make it more valid by including the point of view of the speaker? Yes, because then it's not an info dump. It is conveying the emotion or the, the place where that speaker is in their life, in their head, in their emotions, in their their personal journey. So this is a this is a tool. Yes. This is a tool. When you need to get the description of the room in, because you know, Chekhov's gun has been brought up in Act One, you know it's got to show up in Act Two. You, if you have to have a description of the room, you can make it more palatable by stopping it from being an info dump and turning it into DPOV. Yes. Also, that's if, if you have a description of a room, what is it that your character sees? Do they see the fact that the paintings match, the sofa matches the carpet? Right. Do they see how many exits there are in case someone's going to attack? Exactly. Do they see the enormous flat screen TV on the wall and the the crystal vase? Right. It's an opportunity. A description is an opportunity to tell me more about the character. Exactly. Having eureka moments here. Um, I was driving down the road a couple of years ago before my husband died. My, we were all listening to Jimi Hendrix. We were all listening. We were listening to the same song. I was hearing the singer. My husband was hearing the guitar. My son was hearing the drums. We were all listening to the same song, right? Right. And so how you describe something depends on who you are. Listen, I know that's a really basic concept, but it has just occurred to me for the very first time. So. <laughs> <laughs> So that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I wonder if we can't do an exercise. I know you've got more samples to read, but if we took a story that you and I both knew and attempted to to describe a scene from the different characters' points of view. Yeah. That would be so (laughs) much fun. I think that would be fun. Okay. Uh, I think you have other examples, though, don't you? I don't want to interrupt you. Okay. Um, I have two other examples. One is absolutely an info dump, but it's necessary because 
It is the beginning of a fantasy book, and it is kind of essential sometimes if you're creating a world that is so very, very different from ours, like science fiction and just way out there fantasy. If you're creating a world that is entirely different from ours, to describe that world so that the reader understands where they are and how the world works, okay? Mm -hmm. So the example I have is from The Color of Magic, the prologue written by Terry Pratchett. Okay. In a distant and secondhand set of dimensions, in an astral plane that was never meant to fly, the curling star mists waver and part. See, great Atuin, the turtle, comes swimming slowly through the interstellar gulf, hydrogen frost on his ponderous limbs, his huge and ancient shell pocked with meteor craters. Through sea-sized eyes that are crusted with room and asteroid dust, he stares fixedly at the destination. In a brain bigger than a city with geological slowness, he thinks only of the weight. Most of the weight is, of course, accounted for by Berylia, Tobol, Great Tufon, and Jirkin, Jirikin, the four giant elephants upon whose broad and star-tanned shoulders the disk of the world rests. Garlanded by the long waterfall of its vast circumference and domed by the baby blue vault of heaven. Astropsychology has been as yet unable to establish what they think about. And it goes on and on. But, I mean, he is describing a world that it's a flat world. It's, it's disc that sits balanced on top of four elephants which are on top of this great swimming turtle as it swims through space. Right. You can't get any weirder than that. <laughs> well, actually, I've heard of all of those images have come up in other books. This must be based in some folklore that I haven't come across yet. Stephen King uses the turtle and beams and who's, you know, it's all turtles all the way down. Uh, explain to me if it's W-A-I-T weight or W-E-I-G-H-T weight. Are we w waiting e on time or? No, no, wait, W-E-I-G-H-T. Heavy, heavy, heavy. The phrase geological slowness is just fucking genius. That's just, it's so luscious I had to write it down. I mean, oh, that's but, gorgeous. That's what's, what's really funny is that it goes on and it says, for example, what was Atuin's actual sex? This vital question, said the astrozoologists with mounting authority, would not be answered until a larger and more powerful gantry was constructed for a deep space vessel. In the meantime, they could only speculate about the revealed cosmos. For example, well, it goes on. <laughs> I mean, they're just, they're, they're going into everything. They're trying to figure out. It's so the, interesting. The sex the turtle and everything about it. From this. I am somewhere between science fiction and fantasy. I've got hydrogen mist or frost yeah. on an enormous turtle. So yeah. that setting is, is fulfilling my reader expectations, assuming I picked up something that I wanted to be 
a wild blend of science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. And of course, I mean, Terry Pratchett's Discworld is so famous and it's just such a concept because it's a flat world. When there are waterfalls falling off the world, where does the water go? How does it get back up? I've, that's always disturbed me. <laughs> <laughs> and the world, because it's flat, it doesn't spin. It goes winter shins and, and I forget what the counter, it, it turns in a different way. I've never read those books. Oh, yes. They are, they're social satire. Wow. All that and it's social satire? Yeah. Not not too ambitious. Pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> no, you should read you should definitely read Terry Pratchett. All right. All right. Put, I will. put that in your TBR pile. That's a pretty good that's a pretty those those are pretty luscious phrases. I'm saving geological slowness. I mean, that's just awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Okay. Um, Finally, I'm going to read one last um, this one last description. And everybody, but everybody knows the beginning of this description. But rarely do people read the entire thing. All right, this is a challenge. Okay, it was a dark and stormy night, and brigands, large and small, were gathered around the campfire. No, Peter Antonio, he said, "Tell us that story you tell so well." And Antonio rose and spoke as follows. It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> Sorry. The original sentence. <laughs> okay. Yes, I'm interested. I'm interested. It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents, except at occasional intervals when it was checked by a violent gust of wind, which swept up the streets, for it is in London that our scene lies, rattling along the housetops and fiercely agitating the scanty flame of the lamps that struggled against the darkness. Is it Harry Potter? Huh? Is it Harry Potter? Edward Bulwer-Linton, 1830. That is the full famous sentence. That is one sentence that goes on for a whole paragraph. Read Read it again. Read again. It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents. And by the way, after stormy night, it's a semicolon. Okay. It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents, except at occasional intervals when it was checked by a violent gust of wind, which swept up the streets, for it is in London that our scene lies, rattling along the housetops and fiercely agitating the scanty flame of the lamps that struggled against the darkness. I think that's awesome. It is one of the world's most famous sentences. I didn't know it. I didn't know the attribution. I knew nothing about it. That's awesome. Okay. So the whole point why I love it and love to include it when talking about description is because it so firmly plants you in this world. It does. You know after reading that sentence, exactly where you are, what the weather's like, what the time of day it is. I mean, everything. And it sets the atmosphere. I mean, you're just watching this flickering candlelight and hearing the rain pounding. And you know that somebody's not going to pop up and say, I'm not there. I'm trying to do this. Right? <laughs> 
<laughs> You're all set for a dark and stormy, scary story. Awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so we're dealing with description as an opportunity to provide uh, deep POV and to fulfill reader expectation and to provide actual information about the scene. But it's almost as though that's almost a secondary goal. These, these descriptions serve more than one purpose. They need to. They really need to. And I mean, why would you do one thing with your prose when you can do two or three? Yeah, that would make it more powerful. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty good. Okay. Okay. I don't have a, an example, but another thing that it, that description can do is provide conflict. Explain that. There is one author whose name I just, I really wish I could remember what her name was. She uh, had characters trudging through the desert. They were lost in the desert, lost in their life at the same time. So she would put somebody physically in some place that showed who, what they were struggling with. So the description dealing with the desert, think of Dorothy and her tornado. It provided conflict. The tornado provided conflict, but you don't, you don't, that's a plot element, not a, shit, that's it's interesting. Setting. So what, it's setting. It's setting, providing conflict, the burning sun of the desert, the, the wind and the rain of the tornado, whatever. So by conflict, what you mean is metaphor or, or some kind of symbolism. Or it could just be a physical conflict. Trying to get out of the desert, trying to find your way. The challenge that you have to overcome. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. All right. Um, have I, am I interrupting you if I come up with our writing assignment, our little, a little imaginary assignment? Do you have more? Do you want me to stop? Um, just looking through my notes. Uh, mm-hmm. I have setting that may reflect the conflict that's going on in the story, as in the desert the person lost in the desert is literally lost, doesn't know what they're doing in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, it affects the pacing of the story. Is your story set in the countryside where things, life just goes at a much slower pace than it does in Washington, D.C.? Mm-hmm. Um, setting can be used as a character in the story. Uh, you mentioned Harry Potter. Think of Hogwarts. Think of uh, the platform nine and three quarters. Right. They are characters in you the think story. Characters. Hogwarts. Oh, yeah, I guess I can see that. I guess I can Hog- see that. Hogwarts, the building literally changes, physically changes with what <laughs> the characters need. There's the room of requirement. True. That's true. The staircases that go different places, the, uh, the, the portraits that serve as guardians to the various houses. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. So okay. The setting is a character in the story. Okay. All right. I like it. Okay. Okay. That's all I got. That's- okay. Pretty good. It's pretty good. Here's my here's my little tiny assignment for us. Envision a carnival, any roadside carnival, nothing fancy. Mm-hmm. And how it is described by Harry Potter, 
Dorothy, Sherlock Holmes, and Bart Simpson. <laughs> I love it. So I think what Dorothy would see would be the guy selling hot air balloon rides, <laughs> right? That's the, the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. Was that's, what, that's how he got blown off course. So that's what I think she described. She would stand in line excitedly hoping that she could go up in his hot air balloon. He also, at the beginning of the film, goes to visit Dr. Marvel yes, to, and to see what he could tell her in his magic crystal ball. That's true. I was thinking of the book, but you're right. So he, she would, she would also see a fortune teller. Yeah. She would see a, yeah, she would see a carny. She would see a con man and believe what he told her. Exactly. Absolutely. All right. All right. <laughs> and what Harry you, Potter. Potter. What would Harry Potter see? Harry Potter would see the magic of the carnival. He would see what what tricks were being done and what feats. And he would either see that they were muggles doing this with absolutely no magic and it was all just sleight of hand, or right. maybe there's actually a witch there performing actual magic. He would see the house <laughs> who were scurrying about making things happen. Yeah, absolutely. He would see tents that were small on the outside and enormous on the inside. <laughs> it's a different carnival okay mm -hmm. sherlock holmes sherlock holmes would analyze the whole thing right it would be very different you know i've read arthur conan doyle uh and he does not spend a lot of time doing um holmesian descriptions i mean what holmes sees comes out in dialogue he does not because it's dr watson who is narrating mm. The description is not overanalyzed. It's not until Sherlock Holmes explains why he thinks this, but the descriptions all come in Watson's point of view. So wow. I think that's sort of just an interesting case. How would Watson describe the carnival? How would Sherlock Holmes describe the carnival? That would be two very different things. Absolutely. And the wonderful thing about Sherlock Holmes is that Watson would see the joy and the fun and the right. children having fun and, and laughing and playing. And Holmes would see no emotion at all. Exactly. Exactly. He would know how many children there were. He would not care what they were doing. Exactly. <laughs> so there are a lot of different ways that you can use the description to illuminate the book that you're writing. Um, Bart Simpson, are you a Simpsons fan? I would. I am I think not. I, have, I don't know Bart Simpson. It would so just you be, go ahead what trouble he could get into and everything would be in primary colors and very simply drawn, not, not cartoonishly, but the description would be simple and spare and where there was food and what trouble he could get into and who he could dorm. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that this is a very fascinating um, look at how to make setting and description more powerful by doing double duty and avoiding the info dump. Yes. That's sort of, that's a big takeaway for me because as a new writer, I am prone to, as you know, Bob, and I am prone to info dumps. And I think that if I, if I know that I have this tool that I can at least keep some of the information, as long as I put it in the perspective of the speaker, that's, that's a technique that anyone, excuse me, I have a bilious disorder that anybody can use. I thought it's powerful. 
That's powerful. Yeah. You've given you've given good good value. Thank you. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Um, did we have a comment? We did. And I was just looking up in my email to see, but I think it was was it Becky? I thought it was Brenda. No, Brenda had commented before. This was somebody entirely new. This was Becky, I think, who is working on her MFA and listens to us every week because we crack her up. (laughs) If you're getting your MFA, Becky, I mean, come on. (laughs) You've got more important people to listen to. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening, our hero. You know, it would be interesting to chat up Becky and find out what she's learned from her MFA, what we need to know, what what can we use from her Masters of Fine Arts that we can apply. Becky, one more time. I also just want to know how she heard of us. (laughs) Yeah, well, two comments. How did you hear of us? How did you stumble on us? And what lessons from getting a Masters in Fine Arts can we apply? Got any, got any words of wisdom, Becky? Come on, share. Come on, share. Although I'll take shares from anybody, but I'm pretty impressed with the MFA concept. <laughs> I myself have not been on the Discord server a lot lately because just as we're recording this, we're getting ready for the Washington Romance Writers annual retreat, and I've been doing communications for that. So I have not been doing a lot of uh, writing and discording. Um, but that's over. Sunday. So I'm going to be back on the Discord server doing writing sprints and chatting people up. So I hope people will join us. Oh, yeah. I am afraid I have also not been there because I have been editing. And guess what? I am done. I am done all three books of my trilogy. That is a glorious day. Congratulations. That's so, so awesome. Book number I one. I'm sorry. I get to be a beta reader. You get to be a beta reader. (laughs) So the book is in Prue's grubby little hands. Yeah. (laughs) Correctly described. (laughs) And also, also in the hands of Chris Hall, who was a guest on our podcast. She is my editor. She's got Dash and the Moon Glow Mystic now. She's got the the sequel to Sin and the Peanut Butter Cup to see if it's, uh, to see what its future should be. So. That woman's a Disney woman. Uh, So, listener, Becky, Brenda, Glory, Rich, all of you, we love you. Um, (laughs) Join us on the board server. Others can come too and continue to listen and chat us up and rate us and know that we love you. Ask questions, leave comments. What do you want to talk about? Here we are. Next week, blurbs and book descriptions. Yes. Thank God. Thank God. That's like a nightmare. Here's what I think. Every author I've come across hates two things. Well, (laughs) that's a lie. Two things that every author hates is marketing and book descriptions. Yes. We can add 100%. Yep. Yep. So, okay. I'm, I'm ready to learn about book descriptions and I feel very empowered and inspired by settings. So thank you very much. That was awesome. Thank you, Prue. I'll talk to you next week, Mary. Okay. Bye. That's it 
for the writer's block party this week, we don't want you getting so drunk on knowledge that you can't drive your laptop safely. But next week we'll be here before you know it, so check out the website at thewritersblockpartypodcast.com. One word. That's where you can find our archive of past podcasts and a place where you can get in touch with Mary and Prue or ask questions for the next podcast. Write with joy, friends, and see you next week. Thank <laughs> you.